Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on diagnosis and management of diarrhea in the outpatient setting. I'm Dr. M. Susan Burke, and I'm a clinical associate professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. I'm joined today by Dr. Darren Brenner, an Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery in the Gastroenterology Department at Northwestern University, as well as the Director of the Neurogastromotility and Functional Bowel Programs. In this podcast, we will have two objectives. The first is to review the diagnosis and workup of diarrhea with emphasis on IBS-D or IBS with diarrhea. The second is to provide guidance on current treatments for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. Dr. Brenner and I will walk you step-by-step through a real patient case to achieve these goals, and we'll include a discussion of some alternative situations and how they may differ. So let's get started. Yolanda is a 24-year-old woman who has moved to your area to start a new job, and she presents to you as a new patient. She is very frustrated because she's experienced intermittent diarrhea for many years now, and she has bloating and cramping after many of her meals. She doesn't feel that her previous doctor was very concerned about her problem or offered any treatments except to use over-the-counter loperamide when it got really bad. Some days she may have up to six loose bowel movements never has noticed any bright red rectal bleeding, melana, weight loss, or fevers. Her symptoms have gotten worse since she moved here about three months ago. She often worries she won't make it to the bathroom on time, and she's not been joining with her work friends for dinner because of this fear. She also has been trying to lose some weight by eating salads and uh, vegetables and lean meat. Her past history is unremarkable, Uh, so surgical history, she's only had a tonsillectomy. She's on no meds, no allergies, and importantly, no family history of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, or malignancy. She's single. She has no children, doesn't smoke. She drinks about seven glasses of wine per week with her friends if she can get out for those uh, things. Her vitals are unremarkable. Her BMI is 24. She's in no distress. HENT, cardiovascular, pulmonary are unremarkable. Her abdominal exam is soft and non-tender, and except for a little mild tenderness to palpation of her lower abdomen, especially uh, on the left more so than the right. There's no distension or masses, however. Extremities and neuro are normal, and her rectal exam is negative for occult blood. So 
I'm going to ask you, Darren, are there any distinctive features of IBS that set it apart from other differential diagnoses in somebody like Yolanda? Yeah, this is a difficult question to answer, Susan, because we talk a lot about irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea mimickers, including microscopic colitis, celiac, inflammatory bowel disease, including both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, bile acid malabsorption, and the list goes on. So at times it can be very difficult to differentiate these patient populations. There are some previous studies, however, that have shown that if a patient presents with classic IBS symptoms, meets criteria for irritable bowel syndrome, doesn't have a lot of the alarm signs or symptoms that you just discussed, including bleeding, weight loss, new onset of symptoms, nocturnal symptoms, being under the age of 50, having a family history of colon cancer, IBD, or celiac, that the pretest probability of irritable bowel syndrome is actually pretty high. Okay. So if she presented to me, I would do a CBC and either a SED rate or a CRP to rule out anemia or an inflammatory bowel process, just to kind of lay that to rest. Uh, do you do that, or do you do any other labs or imaging routinely? Yeah, I don't do a lot of imaging per se. I know a lot of my colleagues in the gastroenterology field would probably perform a colonoscopy on this young woman because she's having diarrhea and abdominal discomfort symptoms throughout inflammatory bowel disease. I think the CDC is completely appropriate. Some people would order a TSH. Um, other things that we recommend, you know, the two biggest mimickers of IBSD are celiac and inflammatory bowel disease. But we now live in a, an area of evidence-based medicine where we can almost rule out the potential for other things besides irritable bowel with diarrhea with a few simple serologic or stool studies. So celiac. We do recommend testing for celiac. We recommend a serum IgA and a tissue transglutaminase IgA. And if these are normal, the likelihood of celiac being the root cause of the patient's symptoms are very low. Uh, a colleague of mine, Stacey Meniz at the University of Michigan, did a very eloquent study a few years back looking at using inflammatory markers to differentiate patients with IBS from patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And what she was able to show is that if you have a patient that meets criteria for irritable bowel with diarrhea and has no alarm signs or symptoms, and you obtain a serum CRP and it's less than 0.5, the likelihood that patient may have, uh, sorry, may have inflammatory bowel disease is approximately 1%. If you obtain a fecal calprotectin and the level is less than 40, again, the likelihood this patient has inflammatory bowel disease is approximately 1%. And if you order both studies, obviously the likelihood is even lower. There's some newer data that suggests that we could use stool lactoferrins as well. So when I see these patients, I'm really not ordering ESRs, but I do get CRPs in the hopes that between a CRP and a fecal calprotectin and a few celiac studies, I can avoid having to perform an endoscopy or a colonoscopy on these patients and be very confident in my diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. Do you ever do any imaging then, or would you ever consider imaging? Very rarely and very infrequently. Now, if the patient presented with alarm symptoms like recurrent rectal bleeding, anemia, new onset symptoms, they're over the age of 50, over the age of 50, IBS is a, is a diagnosis of exclusion. Then in these situations, um, if the history guided me in one way or another, 
I would certainly consider something like a colonoscopy, especially if the patient's over the age of 50 and had not been screened for colon cancer, or if I was concerned that there could be some sort of inflammatory process in the abdomen or pelvis. Sometimes a mimicker can be something like ovarian cancer. Then in these situations, yes, further diagnostics with imaging and or endoscopic evaluations may be warranted. So are there some Rome criteria that would apply to Yolanda? Yeah, again, um, as we've discussed in other podcasts, the differences between Rome 3 and Rome 4 um, can make it a little bit concerning from a clinician's standpoint on how to diagnose these individuals. Uh, again, from my clinical perspective, if a patient presents with abdominal pain or discomfort, their symptoms get better or worse when they have a bowel movement, and on the days that they have the pain or discomfort, um, this is associated with a change in stool form or frequency, and in this situation, we're talking about diarrhea, so loose, mushy, or watery stools without any alarm signs or symptoms, then I can be pretty confident that we're looking at a patient with IBSD. Again, if we do a few serologic studies and stool studies, as I previously mentioned. And I do use the Bristol stool scale to differentiate these patients. Again, when it comes to defining somebody as having irritable bowel syndrome, we break these down into three separate categories. There are the patients with irritable bowel syndrome or constipation, irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea or mixed IBS. And by definition, someone with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea is somebody that's going to be passing loose, mushier, watery stools, which are the Bristol six or seven stools that you see. Um, in most cases, patients will come to your clinic and they will define these as um, chocolate pudding or soft stools that clump together or chocolate milk or completely liquid. They have to have these stools more than 25% of the time and harder lumpy stools less than 25% of the time. So what can we do for Yolanda today? What do we tell her diet-wise, or do you wait and do this workup first before you um, start anything for In a patient like Yolanda, my pretest probability is very high that she has irritable bowel syndrome or diarrhea. And I think one take-home point from the vast majority of the treatments that we have for IBSD is that overall they're safe. So I'm not concerned about trying therapies at this time. What makes it difficult is that there are numerous different classes of therapeutics that we can use. There are diet modifications. And realistically, almost two-thirds of individuals that present to my clinical practice have tried some sort of diet change before they even come to see me. There are other over-the-counter therapies. There are probiotics. There are peppermint oils. Um, there are behavioral therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy. And then there are multiple classes of pharmaceuticals that can be used to treat this disorder. The problem is that we have no head-to-head -head clinical trials showing us whether or not one therapeutic is going to be more beneficial than another. A shift from the paradigm of irritable bowel syndrome, especially when it comes to IBSD, is looking for the underlying causes or mechanisms for this disorder. So, for example, we know that some patients develop IBSD symptoms because they have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Some patients develop post-inflammatory, post-infectious IBS and their inflammatory changes in their GI tract. Some people modify their diet, which modifies their gut microbiome, and others have evidence of bile acid malabsorption. And as we develop newer biomarkers and ways to test for these underlying pathogenic mechanisms, this will give us a better roadmap on how to treat these individuals. We're not there yet, so a lot of this is trial and error, and I make it very clear to my patients that it's a trial and error process. And as such, I use their own personal biases 
when I'm picking treatments. If they want to use over-the-counters, we'll talk about over-the-counters. If they want to talk about pharmaceuticals that have more evidence behind them, we'll talk about those as well. Yeah, she's she's coming to me, and she's very frustrated. So uh, one of the things uh, I was wondering, are salads that she's eating to try and lose weight a good option for her, and would a FODMAP diet help her? Or, like, what are we going to tell her today because she's miserable? Yeah, so salads, she'll probably have been able to tell us at this point whether or not she finds these to be uh, beneficial or deleterious. A lot of people cannot handle the vegetables and things that they put in their salads, and I tell my patients, Unfortunately, a healthy diet, a diet in cruciferous vegetables and grains, can be a gassy or uncomfortable diet. Um, the FODMAP diet, I think we're talking more about a low FODMAP diet. And again, when we talk about FODMAPs, we're talking about fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Basically, highly fermentable carbohydrates that can increase the osmotic load in the GI tract which leads to secretion of fluid and intestinal lumen distension, which can lead to diarrhea. And a lot of these foods are not fermentable, and thus they get down into the colon, and the bacteria that we have in our colon ferment them into hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide, which is the gas, bloating, distension, discomfort component of our patient's symptoms. So I'm not averse to a low FODMAP diet, and there are certainly clinical trials from Europe, Australia, and the United States that shows this can be beneficial in improving abdominal pain discomfort, altering stool texture and frequency, and improving quality of life. But we also have to be aware that a low FODMAP diet is not a long-term diet. There are multiple phases to this diet, and the first phase is elimination. But the elimination process should only last two to four weeks and should be done under the auspices of a good dietitian. Because unfortunately, Dr. Google is not a good place to get your information. There are lots of websites out there that purport low FODMAP diets, which are not accurate and do not allow us to get a good sense of whether or not a patient's response. If after two to four weeks, the patient doesn't respond to a low FODMAP diet, it should be stopped. If the patient does respond, then we start to add the classes back in. The fructans, the lactose the, um, the um, disaccharides like lactose or the monosaccharides like fructose to figure out which ones the patients can tolerate. The literature is starting to show and suggest that long-term a low FODMAP diet may not be safe. We see reductions in bifidobacteria species, which are common commensal organisms in our GI tract. We've seen reductions in the short-chain fatty acid butyrate. Lots of physicians out there are using a low FODMAP diet as a diagnostic for irritable bowel syndrome, which it is not. Patients are developing orthorexia because of the diet. And then importantly, when we look at vitamins and micronutrients, we've seen deficiencies in calcium, thiamine, and riboflavin. While people love this diet and it will work for our patients, we have to be very fastidious on how we recommend it, how long we do it, and, wonder, and what we do after they respond to it. Well, that's information that I wasn't aware of. Uh, you did mention peppermint oil capsules. Uh, do you find that they are helpful? I, I've found in my practice that if I can get somebody to buy it over the counter, that uh, it is useful for them. I absolutely agree. And actually what people don't realize is that in Europe, the European Medical Agency recommends them as a first-line therapy for irritable bowel syndrome or diarrhea, and it makes sense. They have anticholinergic, they have anti um, inflammatory, they have anti-serotonergic, and they have anti-gas properties. 
So the properties of peppermint oil kind of impacts all the symptoms that we see in patients with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, and there has been multiple clinical trials that have shown that it can be beneficial for the global symptom profile that is IBSD. Other nice things about peppermint oil, not very expensive, and minimal side effect profiles in the most recent studies, no adverse events that were noted higher in the populations receiving peppermint oil compared to the placebo population. So I'm a big fan. And I'm a big fan for a couple of reasons. People can use them day by day, and they can use them on demand. A really nice study from my friend Brooks Cash on microspherical formulations of peppermint oil showed that if you have intermittent symptoms like a lot of our patients do, you can get a 40% reduction in the intensity of the symptoms within the first 24 hours. So for people with sporadic symptoms, this can be a very nice on-demand therapy for them to use. Yeah, I've actually found that they're sometimes better than an anti-diarrheal that they can get over the counter. I agree. And the important thing to, to recognize when we talk about anti-diarrheals is remember, the anti-diarrheals will improve stool frequency and will improve stool texture, but will not get you the abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating symptoms that people with IBS experience like a lot of the other medications out there will. And again, when we talk about guidelines and recommendations 2018, 2019, we're actually starting to recommend against using over-the-counter therapies to treat IBSD. Uh, does that include probiotics, or do you ever recommend probiotics? You know, I used to be a big fan of probiotics, and in 2009, I wrote a systematic review meta-analysis on the use of probiotics for irritable bowel syndrome. And at that time, we recommended the um, over-the-counter probiotic Bifidobacterium infantis 35624. If and when I use probiotics, I usually still start with that one because there is some clinical data to show that it may be effective in IBS. It has good quality control. But realistically, when it comes to probiotics, if we were to look at the iceberg that is the microbiome, using probiotics, we are 20,000 leagues under the sea. We don't have a lot of data suggesting which strains to use, whether they should be used isolated or in combinations. Um, what the concentrations of medication probiotics should be. For example, people like to come in and say that they're using um, probiotic formulations in the range of billions or trillions of colony-forming units per cc. We have no data suggesting that's any better than tens, hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands. So right now, I'm not a huge fan of probiotics. That being said, I do wholeheartedly believe that a decent percentage of the IBS population we see um, are presenting to us because they have alterations in their gut microbiomes or dysbiosis. And when we understand this better, we will be able to alter the microbiome using probiotics in the future to improve symptom profiles. Yeah, I've heard, too, that uh, the some of the generic versions of the probiotics really don't have the ingredients that are stated on the label. And, and, and just as you said, it doesn't seem as though it's actually helping the patient at all. Yeah, that's a very good point, Susan. When they say compare to, you really want to flip the box and look at two things. Number one, the strains. This is truly strain-specific. And the strains in the generics are not the same as the strains in the, um, I won't call them prescriptions, number by prescription, but the proprietary blends that are out there. The other thing you want to look at is what is in the capsule. So if you have somebody that has a milk allergy, a lot of these things are formulated in capsules that have some milk proteins in them. What I tell my patients with probiotics is this. If you want to try one, go ahead. There's really no harm to it. 
I recommend that my patients use them for a month, no longer. If they respond, continue to use it. If you don't respond, stop it. I like them to use probiotic formulations one at a time. And a lot of people come back and ask me, do you think this is a placebo effect? And my answer is absolutely for a significant percentage of the population. But if I can give them something that really isn't expensive and is safe and it improves their symptoms, I'm okay with that. Now, I had read years ago that one of the recommendations for IBS patients was that they would benefit from keeping some kind of diary. Is this still anything that's recommended? Sometimes a food diary can help us tease out different classes of foods that we can ask the patient to avoid to see if it improves their symptoms. Other people have recommended, you know, just keeping diaries in terms of their day-to-day livelihood and, um, you know, quality of life. There are certainly clinical trials that have shown that uh, writing in a journal can potentially improve symptoms as well. So, like, psychotherapy um, by yourself? Yeah, exactly. There are no head-to-head trials showing that, you know, that type of therapy is better than, you know, office-based therapy. Um, My personal bias is that office-based therapies or combinations of office-home therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, are going to be more beneficial, but I can't substantiate that with the literature. So let's talk a little bit about some pharmacologic agents that uh, you will uh, use or offer for a like Yolanda, and what do we do when she fails first round of treatments? Sure. Again, you know, uh, from a GI standpoint, we're trying to get away from those therapies that treat just one portion of the symptoms. If you go back historically, if you had predominantly abdominal pain, we would try to treat that with um, antispasmodic medications or antidepressants. If you had constipation, we'd give you laxatives. If you had diarrhea, we'd give you antidiarrheals, and we target the primary symptoms. The problem is that patients with irritable bowel syndrome have been finite and steadfast. They don't want us just to treat the abdominal pain or discomfort, which I call the gut symptoms, or the changes in stool frequency or texture, which I call the butt symptoms. They want you to be able to treat both. And we have good therapeutic interventions now that can treat both symptoms at the same time. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, when it comes to the anti-diarrheals, the -the over-the-counters, look at the butt symptoms but not the gut symptoms. When it comes to the antispasmodics like dicyclamine or hyoscyamine, these really will help abdominal cramping, and they're best served on demand but they are not going to get you the global symptom profile of irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. In 2019, we have therapies that will. And again, these include over-the-counters like diet modification, peppermint oil, behavioral therapies, but also prescription medications like rifaximin, elexadiline, and elocitron. All of these have been shown to improve global IBS symptoms. Do you often use an antidepressant in Yolanda to just help actually with comfort? You know, I I used to. A a decade plus ago when I trained, um, tricyclic antidepressants were first-line interventions. And they're still considered first-line interventions by our societal guidelines. But in reality, for younger individuals, there's a stigma related to them. I don't even like calling them antidepressants anymore. When I talk to my patients about using these medications, I talk about them being neuromodulators, and I talk specifically about serotonin and how we've used SSRIs or SNRIs to treat anxiety and depression, but it turns out that approximately 90 to 95% of our serotonin receptors reside in our GI tract, and that's why we can use them. The vast majority of my younger patient population don't want to go to those therapeutics first. I'm not against them. They will improve global symptoms, 
but they usually want to try other newer types of medications before they'll go into that class. So what if Yolanda noted small amounts of bright red bleeding? Then, I, then I'm concerned. Sure. Then I'm a little bit more concerned about potentially inflammatory bowel disease, especially if it's persistent bleeding or anemia. At that point, she's bought herself a colonoscopy. Also, we've noticed that um, we are identifying colon cancer and high-risk lesions at uh, individuals in younger age groups, and we don't know why, so that could be concerning as well. So if there was bleeding, at that point, I think I would be uh, more likely to perform a colonoscopy. Uh, what if she were 54 instead of 24? Then she's absolutely bought herself a colonoscopy. Yeah, absolutely. She's never had one before. Just for age-appropriate screening, I would be doing a colonoscopy in her. If her mother had inflammatory bowel disease, would that change your approach, even though it really sounds like mm -hmm. uh, bowel? Yeah, she has, she has a first-degree relative with inflammatory bowel disease, and since there is a genetic link and an increased risk in an individual like that, then again, in this instance, I'd probably perform a colonoscopy. And then if we got a history, I'm sure if... if Breads or pasta bothered her more, or dairy bothered her more. I'm sure we could uh, have her do some type of elimination diet and also check for the celiac, which we will generally do uh, as your first round, it sounded like. Yeah, we, we recommend testing for celiac in all patients with irritable bowel syndrome or diarrhea, irritable bowel syndrome of mixed type. It's too easy to do. You don't want to miss it. And there may be a small increased risk in the prevalence of celiac in patients with IBS. So, again, you know, all the complications that come with celiac, micronutrient deficiencies like B12, iron, uh, bone breakdown, demineralization in young women, infertility, miscarriages, and then the increased risk of cancer. These are things that we don't want to miss. But, you know, if a patient like Yolanda came in and was able to identify a few different foods that caused their symptoms, absolutely would recommend a food diary and avoidance. And if that's all it took to improve her symptoms or alleviate her symptoms and it did not affect her quality of life, I wouldn't take it any further. So assuming does well on treatment, when, how would you consider weaning her off of any medication provided? Again, IBS is a chronic condition with symptoms that wax and wane over time. That is predicated on whether or not the patient wants to stop therapy. The nice thing about some of these medications, you know, we mentioned the peppermint oil. It can be an on-demand therapy. There's another one that we didn't talk about specifically, which is Rifaximin, which is FDA-approved for irritable bowel syndrome with uh, diarrhea. It's a finite two-week course of therapy. So some patients may want to just do that one and say, okay, I can take this medication, and my symptom relief may last days, weeks, months, years. So like that sort of thing because they don't have to take a medication every day. Because this is not a malignant process, I am very comfortable with patients coming into my clinical practice and saying, you know, Dr. Brenner, I've taken this medication, I'm doing fine, but I'd like to try a little bit of a drug holiday and see where I'm at. I have never once told a patient that they couldn't do that. Uh, do you have any pearls on effective communication with this patient population, and how do you offer reassurance to patients over the long term? I think the most important part of the initial visit is reassurance, even more so than prescribing some form of therapy. It's very hard for patients with irritable bowel syndrome to believe in this diagnosis because, remember, we don't, with the exception of a few different tests, have a way to define this disorder. You're not going to find anything on biopsy. 
There are very few blood tests that are available that are going to confirm this, and there's nothing you're going to see on a radiologic study. So first and foremost, I tell my patients, look, you have a common disorder. This impacts 11% of the people in the United States, which is one in every nine individuals. So when you go to the mall, look around you, you'll probably see a few hundred people, and at least 15 to 20 of them have irritable bowel syndrome like you. I tell them that this is not dangerous. It does not mean that it's going to turn into inflammatory bowel disease. It is not linked to cancer. It has no impact on their mortality. The symptoms can be better or worse over time. Stress can make symptoms worse. Lack of sleep can make symptoms worse. In women, we see worsening of symptoms perimenstrually. That does not mean that anything bad is going on. And I discuss all the different types of treatments with my patients. Again, there are no head-to-head -head trials, so we do not have a good algorithm for how to treat these individuals. So when I go through the different treatments that are available, I go through every one in terms of what symptoms it can improve, how long it will take to obtain that improvement, what the potential side effect profiles are, and what the costs are. And then between the patient and I, we make an educated decision together. If there's one thing we know about irritable bowel syndrome, that is if you commit to allowing the patient to be part of the decision process, the outcome is always better. If you write a script and it doesn't work and you write a script and it doesn't work and you write a script and it doesn't work and you have not explained this process to the patient and explained to the patient that it can be a trial and error process, the patient's going to lose confidence. They may increase doctor seeking, which means that they're going to get more clinical studies done for no reason, and these patients are going to continue to flail. So having that discussion up front is very important. I'll make one other point. It is time for all practitioners, primary care physicians, obstetrics and gynecologists, surgeons, and most importantly, gastroenterologists, to stop telling these patients that these symptoms are all in their head. That is a misnomer from the 1950s and 1960s. There are significant biologic bases for all the different types of irritable bowel syndrome that we see. And telling your patients it's all in their head does nothing more than make their symptoms worse and their symptoms more difficult to treat. Well, Darren, those were some uh, fabulous pearls. And I think one that I really liked that you said in the beginning there was that other people have this if you look around and see a couple hundred people because, you know, they're in the bathroom or the bathroom stall by themselves and they just feel very alone with this problem when it actually is a way more common problem than, you know, they may. I, I completely agree. I have patients who, you know, have on their, their phones the location of every bathroom. They will not go out to eat. They will not go out with their friends and socialize because they can, they're concerned that they're an island unto themselves. People come to my office all the time, especially with the more abdominal symptoms, and they say to me, Dr. Brenner, you're not going to believe this, but even if I have a small amount of food afterwards, I look nine months pregnant. I tell people, talk to your friends about this. You're going to be surprised how many have very, very similar experiences and can relate to exactly what you're experiencing as well. Well, thank you so much. And audience, if you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our complimentary podcast episode where we take the same approach to IBS with constipation and chronic idiopathic constipation. We thank you again for joining CRIMED for today's podcast. 
Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. That's pri-med.com podcasts. Also be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.